And uh, so, um, for the rest of us, we're going to be continuing in the book of Joshua. We are, today makes our 113th message in the book of Joshua. Amen. And uh, I don't know about you guys, but I've learned a lot about the book of Joshua. My soul. Um, again, as I mentioned before, um, this was a, a challenging week, but also a very, very fruitful week for me individually. And I do want to recognize that Miss Linda is back with us today. Hello, Linda. We love you. Been praying for you. Man, I'm telling you, God has done a miraculous work. And uh, she's even able to drive now, right? So everybody watch out. She's on the road. Um, so we're going to give you a little bit of review from last week, where we were and kind of what we've been teaching. Uh, again, as we're walking through the book of, of Joshua, what we've been seeing is a distribution of the inheritance being given out to, uh, to, the, uh, to the tribes. And last week's message was called From Ruin to Redemption. And what we saw in that message was we were really looking at the tribe of Simeon. And what we saw with Simeon was their, their inheritance was different than what the other tribes received. The others had all received borders. They'd all received specific plots of land. But what we found with, with Simeon was the fact that he was only given jurisdiction over specific cities that were actually in the land of Judah. And we looked at that and we thought, why is it different? And one of the things we figured out was it was directly tied to an event that took place in his history. It all stemmed back to a horrific act of vengeance that took place when Simeon and Levi his brother perpetrated a horrific act. They took what was supposed to be consecrated for the Lord, which was circumcision, a physical connection, a, a link that God gave to Abraham in Genesis 17, which was about a covenant being made between God and man. And they took that covenant and they, con they desecrated it. They used it for ill-gotten gains. They used it to weaken their enemies so they could go in and murder people. And what happened was because of that desecration of this beautiful thing that God had given, then got brought a point of, of destruction. And what happened was they instead of receiving a blessing from their father at his deathbed, would actually receive a curse. And we saw in Genesis chapter 49, verse 7, Cursed be their anger, for it was fierce, and their wrath, for it was cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. And that was the story that we saw with Simeon. And then through Levi, what we saw was eventually he would be redeemed by his descendants where the golden calf incident, when they stood with God. But then with Simeon, we didn't see a redemption moment. There was nothing that was a redemptive plan for them. And what we saw was that Simeon, along with 10 other tribes, which were called the northern tribes, well, what happened is basically they're going to dissolve into history. The Assyrians will eventually take them over, and they'll basically be integrated kind of into those cultures, and they will become, the, they actually called the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But then what we saw was the name kind of disappeared. Simeon vanished. But then 600 years later, that name, that name shows up again. Only no longer is it attached to a tribe. Now it's attached to a specific man, a very special man that God had a plan for. And he told that man, you need to be at the temple because there's going to be a man and a woman. They're going to show up and they're going to be bringing the Messiah with them. And on the eighth day when Jesus was brought to be circumcised, notice the circumcision connection from where Simeon desecrated, now linked to the same name. We're going to see a consecration. Now, the, the Lord Jesus Christ, the ultimate picture. Jesus is literally the only begotten Son of God being circumcised in honor of that covenant and now linked to the name Simeon. So we saw from ruin to redemption of a name. And then we talked about how does that fit for us? There was a day that we can all look back and say, listen, my name used to be attacked to, attached to ruin. There was a day when my life was marred by sin. When people knew my name, they attached it to my past and the things that I'd done. Oh, but God. Oh, but God came into my life and gave me a new name. And He attached my name no longer to the sin of the past, but now to the gospel message to reach the world. And then this name that was worthless before, was suddenly written in the Lamb's book of life. How cool is that? And we see in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. How beautiful that God can bring us from ruin to redemption. And when we saw that beautiful picture, what we're going to do today is we're going to transition to another aspect of God's miraculous work. In the message, which is entitled this morning, From Darkness to Light, the Tribe of Zebulun. Let's pray and get into it. Father, thank you so much for this time. Thank you for your word. God, you know my desire is not to be heard. I don't want to be important. I don't want to be wise. God, you know who I am. I do too. And I think most of these folks do as well. And Lord, I know that uh, there's no good in me. Uh, but God, you have called me to do this, and I'm just asking you 
the best of my ability, Lord, would you help me to get out of the way? Would you remove the human element that your word would speak to my heart and, Lord, that your spirit would speak to us, that we would have ears to hear, Lord, and not only to just hear it, but, Lord, help us to not be hearers but doers of your word, God, that we might apply what we learned today. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so we're going to pick up. You're going to have a map that we're going to throw up on the screen for you just to give you an idea of where Zebulun's territory is. Starting in verse number 10, it says this in Joshua 19. And the third lot came for the children. And you know, guys, I'm going to butcher these names. So just if you know how to say them, just say it in your head because I'm going to ruin them. Um, for the children of Zebulun, according to their families and their borders, their inheritance was unto Sarid. Uh, and their border went up uh, toward the sea into Maralah and reached to Dabasheth and reached to the river that is before Jachnim and turned from Sarid eastward toward the sunrising and to the border of Chisloth-Tabor and to them uh, goeth out to Tabarath and to goeth up to Japhia and from thence passeth on along on the east to Gitah-Hefer and Itzaz-Kazin and goeth out to Rimon-Methor to Nay. We'll just call that name. And the border compasseth it on the north side to Hanathon, and going outgoings thereof are the valley of Jiphthah, El, and Kata, and Nalahala, and Shimron, and Nadalah, and I could just throw, throw whatever. Y'all just read along with me. Uh, Bethlehem, tw- 12 cities with their villages. This is the inheritance of the children of Zebulun, according to their families, these cities with their villages. Now, some of these cities have been recognized and found by archaeologists and theologians, but a lot of them have not. Um, but what we're going to see today is immediately we notice the first thing is the fact that this is talking about a physical place. We notice there's mention of borders. We notice that this is a location. This is not as it was with Simeon, where they did not receive but jurisdiction over cities. This is a specific plot of land. Now, what do we know about Zebulun? Zebulun is the tenth son born to Jacob. His wife or his mother's name was Leah. She was the, he was the sixth born son that she had. And we look in Genesis chapter 30, verses 19 through 20. It says, And Leah conceived again and bare Jacob, the sixth son. And Leah said, God hath endued me with a good dowry. Notice this. Remember the wording that this is, this is a very messed up situation. Listen to Leah's heart. Now will my husband dwell with me. I have provided him six sons and a daughter as well. Because I have borne him six sons, and she called his name Zebulun, which means exalted. She's going to listen. Now, after six sons, maybe my husband will love me. Remember that Jacob had a love for Rachel, her younger sister. He did not have a love for Leah. So keep in mind that Zebulun was the last son born before Rachel's kids come. Now, so we know that Jacob certainly loved his kids. There's no doubt about it. I have a family tree I'm going to throw up here just for you guys to be able to kind of look at. And so if you'll see here, here's Leah. You'll see the firstborn, Reuben, then Simeon, then Levi, then Judah. Then these are going to be the servants. Uh, one Leah's servant, the other's Rachel's servant. You'll see next will be Dan, then Naphtali, then Gad, then Asher. Then you see Issachar, then you see Zebulun, Dinah. And then over here we see Rachel's kids, which is going to be Joseph and then his younger brother, Benjamin. There's about a 12-year difference between Joseph and Benjamin. And what we see is there is a dramatic shift in Jacob's heart towards his kids. There is favoritism, and there is no doubt about it. Now, with Benjamin, it's only assumed. We don't have a whole lot about that. But boy, with Joseph, it's pretty clear. God tells us in Genesis chapter 37, verses 3 through 4, it says this, Now, Israel loved Joseph more than all his children. That's pretty clear, isn't it? Hello. Do not do that to your kids, because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a coat of many colors. Not only do I treat you differently, but I'm going to even dress you differently so everybody can identify that you're my favorite. And verse number four, And when his brethren saw that their father loved him more than all his brethren, they hated him and could not speak peaceably unto him. So not only are the hard feelings boiling under the surface, but they cannot even speak to him in a kind way. They are already so frustrated with him. And then Joseph has a dream. And in the dream, he goes, hey, we were out in the field, and we were picking our sheaves. We're collecting our stuff. And my sheaf stood up really tall and beautiful. It was awesome. And all of yours were like this, bend over to mine, just so you know. And they're all like, what? He's like, I think it means you guys are going to serve me. And they're like, what? And they get frustrated. And this is their response, verse 8. And his brethren said to him, shalt thou indeed reign over us? Or shalt thou indeed have dominion over us? And they hated him yet the more for his dreams and for his words. So now their hatred is compounded. 
They were already couldn't talk to him in a nice way. Can you only imagine the way their communication is now? Whispers, frustration, anger. And then what happens is Jake, Joseph has another dream. And I'm like, read the room, Joseph. Pay attention. <laughs> but he doesn't. He's like, you know what? I'm going to tell you guys my dream. So he does. And he says, hey, guess what? I got another dream. And guess what? You were serving me again. It's amazing. And their response in verse 11 says this, and his brethren envied him. And when you look at that word envied, what it means is jealous rage. They are infuriated against him. But his father observed the saying. And we know that ultimately they're going to actually try to kill him, right? That's the whole dynamic of how things go. So last week we were touching with Simeon and we discussed the dynamic of this family. We talked about the favoritism that exists. We talked about the hard feelings that exist with his family. It's obvious in Genesis 37 that this is what's taking place. But then we also saw that as this progressed, if it were not for the heart of Reuben, the oldest, to step in, Zebulun and his brothers were prepared to murder Joseph. Completely prepared. Reuben saved his life. And then we also saw that whenever, whenever um, uh, Leah was speaking of herself in relation to her relationship with her husband, Jacob, she said that she was hated. And then when God related, God also said that because God saw that she was hated. She was not, not loved. And so this is the environment that Zebulun is growing up in, right? And so we look at this and we go, okay, there's certainly some baggage to be said for his childhood. Now, so if we look at that and we go, okay, well, they, there's some baggage. What I want you to pay attention to is, guess what? There's none of us here that doesn't have some baggage, okay? All of us at some point, at some point in our life, we've got some baggage from our past, from our upbringing that's that still weighs on us. Now, I hopefully none of you guys were ever plotting the murder of one of your siblings. Uh, I don't know your story, but I hope that's not the case. But still, there was, there was issues there. And what we found was the fact that if not for the forgiveness of Joseph, things could have gone much, much worse. Right? Joseph was horribly mistreated, but yet Joseph, who is a picture of Christ, shows this incredible picture of grace. An incredible picture of redemption and restoration. And because of what he does, the family is restored. And so if I want you to, to challenge you, if you are dealing with a person, someone has wronged you, perhaps in your family, perhaps someone that you work with, who knows who it is, but they've wronged you. They have rightfully wronged you, and you have every right to be angry and frustrated. Can I challenge you to take Joseph's example of forgiveness? Forgive those that have hurt you, because I can promise you, if you do not forgive, forgiveness, once it sits for a while, starts to fester. Unforgiveness starts to turn into something called bitterness. Right? The Bible warns of a root of bitterness, because what does it do? It takes root in your life. And not only does it go into your life, but guess what it starts to do? Eventually spread out into the lives of people around you. And what you'll see is the joy that, that God wants you to exist. You can't have it because that bitterness robs us. It poisons our souls. So, man, if you're struggling with bitterness and you're struggling with uh, unforgiveness, let it go. Man, unforgiveness is a poison that you drink to kill somebody else. It does not work. Set yourself free from the destructive force. But what we saw was this family was restored. And because of that, instead of the Zebulun receiving a curse, he receives a blessing. Genesis chapter 49, verse 13. And Zebulun shall dwell at the haven of the sea, and he shall be for an haven of ships, and his border shall be unto Zidon. And so we see here the reference to the sea. And then when we go to, to Moses, Moses also will prophesy over the tribes. And what he does when he speaks of the tribe of Zebulun is he also mentions the sea. Deuteronomy 33, verses 18 and 19. It says, And of Zebulun he said... Rejoice, Zebulun, in thy going out, and Issachar in thy tents. They shall call the people unto the mountain. There they shall offer sacrifices of righteousness. For they shall suck of the abundance of the seas and of treasures hid in the sand. And so here's where things get a little tricky. Because when we look at our map, and we look at where Zebulun is, do you notice that it's not by the sea? Do you see that it's landlocked? Okay? But both Jacob and Moses 
both make specific references to the sea. Now, God, listen, God never, ever has a contradiction in Scripture. When you see an apparent contradiction, what God's doing is He's telling you, now, I want you to go do a little digging. I want you to go rightly divide the Word of God, that you be not ashamed, meaning you can wrongly divide it. So we don't just take things at the face value and go, well, I guess it's just a mistake. No, there are no mistakes with God. So what do we do? We dig in to find out a little bit more. So what do, you know about, what do we know about the Zebulonites? That's a cool name, Zebulonites. Well, the first notable thing in their history is the fact that whenever there's a point in time where Moses is gathering the tribes, and when he gathers those tribes together, he's going to take six, and he's going to say, you guys stand on this mountain, and then you six stand on this mountain, and what's going to happen is we're going to have, uh, the, the, the priests are going to share some information with us. We see in Deuteronomy 27, verses 9 through 13, this is way before they get into the Promised Land. It says, And Moses and the priests, the Levites, spake unto all Israel, saying, Take heed and hearken, O Israel, this day thou art become the people of the Lord thy God. What he's telling him is, is, listen, your accountability to me just was solidified right now. And I'm going to tell you my expectations of you right now. You six stand on this mountain, you stand six stand on this mountain, Levites, tell them what I expect. Thou shalt therefore obey the voice of the Lord thy God and do his commandments and his statutes, which I command thee this day. And Moses charged the people the same day, saying, These shall stand upon Mount Gerizim. Gerizim means cut off. It says, To bless the people when ye are come over Jordan. Which tribes? Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin. Notice next. And these shall stand upon Mount Ebal. Ebal translates stone to curse. Reuben, Gad, and Asher, and Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali. And what will happen is he will give them 12 curses, and he will give them 12 blessings. And then he tells them, hey, listen, if you're not careful, if you don't do what I say, this will be the result. Notice this, Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 14 and 15. And thou shalt not go aside from any of the words which I commanded thee this day, to the right hand or to the left, to go after other gods to serve them. Verse 15, but it shall come to pass... If thou wilt not hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes, which I command thee this day, that all these curses shall come upon thee and overtake thee. And what we find is the children of Israel, as they advance and move forward, what we see is, you know what God does? He does all that he can do to help them to accomplish what he's called them to. My goodness gracious, he provides for them takes care of their physical needs. He protects them. He guides them. He fights for them. He does all that he can, and all that he asks in response is that they would be faithful. That's it. You be faithful. Just do what I said. Do not turn to the left or the right. Do what I said. Be faithful. And you know that's exactly the same thing God asks of us. Do you realize that he provides for us? That he guides us? That he fights for us? that He defends us, He does so much for us, and He says, you know what I'm asking for you in return? Be faithful. Be faithful. Yes. Could you just be faithful? Could you be a good steward of the life that I've entrusted you with? Could you do something for my glory instead of your own? And we live in a world that tells us to fulfill ourselves. But what does Scripture tell us? Deny ourselves. They're opposites. And so we look at this and we go, okay, what does God want me to do? Notice what he says in 1 Corinthians 4.2. Moreover, it is, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. And our faithfulness, listen, our faithfulness is the way that we express our love and our devotion. This is the way we do it. See, it's true in our earthly relationships. With my wife, Right? Why am I devoted to her? Because I love her. I love her. I'm devoted to her. That makes her my only one. She is the, 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 the one of all ones. I have eyes for only one lady. And man, she's sitting back there in green. And man, she is... Mm. <laughs> Just say it. <laughs> she's my girl. And you know what? I'm faithful to her because I want her to know how much she means to me.
because she is my desire. She's my heart's desire. And see, that's what God wants from us. See, that's the relationship He wants us to have. That we would desire no other but Him. That since she's my one and only, man, an earthly example for you to follow. But listen, He wants to be our one and only. He wants us to be devoted and faithful to Him. And you know what? It's so cool. You know the way I show my wife that I'm faithful? Because I reject every other woman on the planet. You know how you show God you're faithful? You reject the things of this world that want to grab your heart and you say, no, 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 no. I set Him on top. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. He says, listen, get me in the right spot. That's all I ask. I want to bless you. I want to provide for you. I want you to have an amazing life. I want to see you have family and love and joy. I want your life to make a difference in the world. I want to see you gloriously experience all the beauty that I brought to this planet. But just make me first. Keep me number one. Be be faithful. Because you know in James chapter 4 verse 4, he talks about adulterers and adulteresses. And he's not talking about relationships, marriage. He's talking about a spiritual relationship with him. Notice what he says. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is the enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. He's saying, do you not realize that this relationship you have with the world is like me having a girlfriend and a wife? I reject the world to show her because I I choose her. And see, God's saying, listen, I want you to choose me. I chose you. From the cross, I chose you. When you cried out to me in your most broken, most sinful, most disgusting condition, you know what? I came to you because guess what? I love you. I chose you. How beautiful. And the thing is, God's saying, all I'm asking, would you just be faithful? And one of my questions to us is, right? What do we choose? Do we choose the Lord or do we choose the world? Every time Instagram, or whatever it does, I don't know what it does. I don't have Instagram. But every time something on your phone, gives you an indicator. It's going, okay, hey, I want your heart. I want to get your attention. I want to get your time. First thing we wake up in the morning, we could be in prayer. We could go to the Word of God. Or we could go on our line, go online. And so many of us are guilty of allowing the things of the world to draw our hearts, to get our attention. And we would never say that I love God, that I love those things more than God. But can we know that in 2 Timothy chapter 3 it says, they will be lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. It doesn't say they don't love God. It just says they love pleasures more. And we live in a world right now that is all about fulfilling our desires. Our phones are designed to give us what we want to see, to give us an endorphin rush so that we'll continue to be more addicted to the same garbage that ultimately is going to burn up with a fervent heat. Right? That's not a part of my message, but we'll just throw that in. But sadly, when push comes to shove, guess what? Zebulun will have to make a choice. They will be put in a situation where they must decide what it is they're going to do. And Judges chapter 1 Verse number 30 tells us what they chose. Neither did Zebulun drive out the inhabitants of Kitron, nor the inhabitants of Nahalalana, whatever that is. But the Canaanites dwelt among them and became tributaries. Okay, So they had the power to defeat their enemy, but as opposed to driving them out, they made them into slaves. Remember, Ephraim and Manasseh did the same thing. The tribe of Zebulun has done, what are they doing? Instead of driving them out, they are embracing and incorporating the very threat that God warned them would be their undoing. He told them ahead of time, don't let this happen. Specifically warning about this thing, Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 16 through 18. But the cities of these people, which the Lord thy God doth give thee for an inheritance, thou shalt save alive nothing that breatheth, drive it all out, either kill it or drive it out. But thou that utterly destroy them, He says, listen, namely, the Hittites, the Amorites, we just read about the Canaanites, that's who they didn't drive out, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, as the Lord thy God hath commanded thee, be faithful, 
that they teach you not to do after all their abominations, which they have done unto their gods, so should ye sin against the Lord your God. He warns them, if you don't get them out of there, they're going to get your heart. And when they do, they'll turn your heart against me. I'm telling you, before you ever get there, be careful of this one thing. Don't let that happen. And that's exactly what they did. And he warned them of curses that would come. First Chronicles chapter 5, verses 25 through 26 is this. And they transgressed against the God of their fathers and went a whoring after the gods of the people of the land whom God destroyed before them. And the God of Israel stirred up the spirit of Pul, the king of Assyria. Remember what happened? Those ten tribes that vanished, Assyrians, guess what? Pul, the king of Assyria, and the spirit of Tilgath, Pilnazar, king of Assyria, and he carried them away, even the Reubenites. So not only did he take those that are in Canaan, but he went across the Jordan and said, listen, I'm taking those guys too. And he took Reuben, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, and brought them unto Halah, and Habor, and Harah, and to the river, goes unto this day. And this people, this people who were to be a light to the world, these people that God chose and said, listen, you're mine. They're supposed to be an image of the living God. You know what happened to them? They fell into darkness. They fell into darkness and eventually disappeared from history. Zebulun and nine other tribes just kind of dissolved and began. What did Jesus call them? The lost sheep of the house of Israel. And over time, what would happen would God would eventually start to reassess or re-reculminate parts of Israel. And they would start to rise up out of the ashes. And there's a story of the book of Ezra. And there's another book called Nehemiah. And if you're not aware, chronologically, those are the next to the last books of the Bible in the Old Testament. What we see is here Israel starting to reemerge. We see Ezra and Nehemiah. The only, verse, or the only book that follows that is Malachi. Malachi, which is prophetic, speaking of the second coming of the Lord. So we see this time where they come up and they come out. And guess what? Israel sort of reforms and starts to sort of redevelop itself. But then what happens is silence, darkness. For around about 400 years, the world is spiritually dark. And God does not speak to anyone. And so interestingly enough, do you realize that this is not the first time that that's happened? Do you remember back when the Israelites were in Egypt? Do you remember how long they were there? About 400 years. And do you remember what it said about that time? God was silent. Right? And then God finally broke the silence to a burning bush in Genesis or in Exodus chapter 3. And a voice, the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ through a burning bush spoke to Moses who was a picture of the deliverer who would bring them out of darkness and into light. Do we see that? And here we have another 400-year instance of darkness where God's getting ready to change things and He's going to bring a deliverer. And what's so cool about this is that there were men that were talking about this hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before it ever happened. There was a man named Isaiah. And Isaiah had a prophecy. And he gave that prophecy, and this is it right here, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 6. Nevertheless... The dimness shall not be such as was in their vexation when at the first he lightly afflicted the land of, notice this, Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward did more grievously afflict her by way of the sea, notice the sea shows up again, beyond Jordan in Galilee of the nations. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. Light's coming. Thou hast multiplied the nation and not increased the joy. They joy, us uh, as they joy before, they, they according to the whole joy and harvest, and as men rejoice when they divide spoils. For thou hast broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor as in the day of Midian. This is talking about a second time where they were in, when they were in uh, captivity, when they were under, under, uh, under rule. Verse 5. For every battle of the warrior is with confused noise and garments rolled in blood, confusion and fear. But this shall be with burning and fuel of fire. Another burning. Another. Remember the burning bush? Fuel of fire. This is bringing them out. Light. Verse 6. Here we go. 
for unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be wonderful, called Wonderful, Counselor of the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Isaiah was prophesying of the coming Messiah out of a darkness that was on the world. The light of the world was going to come. The Lord Jesus Christ. And did you notice what land he said it was going to come from? By way of that place, Zebulun does nevertheless, this is the dimness shall not be such as was in their vexation, was at the first and highly afflicted the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. What's so interesting about this is later on when Israel starts to reform, it'll be broken up into some divisions. There's going to be Judea, there's going to be Samaria, and there's going to be Galilee. There's Judea at the south, Samaria in the middle, Galilee at the top. And you know the two main tribal lands that make up Galilee? Zebulun and Naphtali. And you know what's so interesting is in the land of Zebulun, there's a city called Nazareth. In John chapter 1, I don't have it in my message, but I want to have it. We're going to look it up real quick. John 1, verse, verse 46. And Nathanael said unto him, can there, any th- good, can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? That's a dark place, brother. Can anything good come out of there? Zebulun was a dark place. The world was dark, and yet here comes, here comes the light. And Jesus would be raised in Nazareth, which just happens to be in the former land of Zebulun. At this, as this land that had been dark for so long would be the very place that light, the light, would come from. And what's so interesting about this is what Matthew records for us in Matthew chapter number 4. Check this out. Matthew 4, verses 13 through 17. And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is upon the seacoast. Again, the sea mentioned again. In the borders of Zebulun and Naphtalim. That it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Esaias. He's going, he's going, okay. He's, I'm, I'm referencing back to Isaiah here, Matthew tells us. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtalim, by the way of the sea, beyond Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people which sat in darkness saw great light. To them that sat in the region, sat in the shadow of death, light is spring up. Verse 17, this is the beginning of the ministry of Christ. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The light is here. How cool that this is all tied together. Isaiah's prophecy is 730 years before Christ ever comes. And so it would be from the land of Zebulun, that out of, out of Nazareth, that the Messiah would come. But what about that issue of the sea? Weird. Again, why are things in there? Why does God throw in these details? And we go, okay, it doesn't make sense because I know they're landlocked. But understand, in Scripture, there's an interesting detail. When God references the sea, there's a picture in the sea, something that's represented in the sea, and it's great waters like seas. We go to Revelation chapter 17, verse 1, it says this, And there came one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials, and talked with me, saying, Come unto me, or it says, it says unto me, come thither. For I says, I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore, right? That, that, that mystery Babylon, that false religion that's going to have control of the people of the world, that sitteth upon many waters, right? Sits upon many waters. God's bringing judgment during the tribulation. That's what he's referencing. Understand, humanity is pictured in these many waters. Verse 15, same chapter. And he saith unto me, the waters which thou sawest, let me tell you what you saw, where the horse sitteth are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. It's the population of the planet earth. And here we go. Jesus Christ, who came to die for the population of the world. John 3.16 tells us, for God so loved the world. And here he comes from Nazareth, 
the land of Zebulun. Is it possible that the seas that are being referenced were never talking about physical seas? That God was talking about a spiritual prophecy? That he was speaking about what would come by way of Zebulun for the sea? And that the sand, right? Do you ever notice in the Bible it talks about the sand of the sea is like the people? And it talks about treasures in the sand? Treasures in the people? Do you see what it's talking about? In fact, what I believe it's saying is the fact that this is a representation of the salvation plan for the world. That Jacob was speaking and he did not know. And Moses was speaking and he did not know. They had no clue. And yet, the sea what was what was so important because that's why Christ would come. Bringing humanity out of darkness into the light by way of the land of Zebulun. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I'm almost done, I promise. Chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. In whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds... Hang on one second. Oh, mercy. Y'all got me all emotional here. I gotta pull it together. In whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure, treasure in earthen vessels, which is referencing people, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. Man, what if those earthen vessels, those treasures, and the fact that God talks about the sand of the sea being people, what if that's what it's about? What if it's all about referencing the fact that the truth of the gospel is going to reach the planet and people will be the treasure of God's heart for the souls of men to drive these, these, these people out there, the treasures that it says hidden in the sand, right? It says of treasures hid in the sand, Deuteronomy said. These that were once in darkness would now see the light. Is that the reason? Can I tell you definitively? I can't. But just a whole lot of cool details thrown in there. I think it was just kind of cool. We would kind of travel down that path together. But what I can tell you for sure is, listen, when Jesus Christ was on this earth, this earth was experiencing a spiritual day. Jesus clearly said, I am the light of the world. From a spiritual standpoint, the planet was experiencing light. It was here. And while he was physically here, he was physically shining on the planet. Now, what's really interesting is the fact that there is a picture in the sun and in the moon. But what happened, Jesus brought the world out of a spiritual night while he was on the earth. He shined as a spiritual sun. Malachi chapter 4, verse 2, there's a reference there. And what you're going to find is it's going to reference, it's going to talk about the son of righteousness, and it says, will arise with healing in his wings. And the spelling of that son is not S-O-N, it is the S-U-N, and it's capitalized. It's referencing Christ, telling us that we're supposed to see Jesus in the son. And he shines, again, this is representing that, that, that spiritual day that he brought. So when Jesus ascends... In Acts chapter 1, verse number 9, the light of the world leaves the earth. So in that moment, the earth will fall into a spiritual night. You and I are currently living in a spiritual, spiritual night. And then what happens when the sun moves on and the night comes, the responsibility to shine shifts off of the sun and onto what? The moon. Now, does the moon have any light of its own? It's a dead rock. All it does is reflect the light of the sun. And how interesting that when the Lord left this earth, the responsibility to shine to the broken people of this world shifted from him and onto believers. And we were to shine just as the moon does. Not our own light. Because again, remember, the moon has no light of its own. Without the sun, it has nothing. It's just a black nothing. 
And what happens is we so many times look at the sun and we think it's a light. It's not. It's just a representation of the light. And listen, that's what God wants us to be. He wants us to be a representation of the light. Do you remember what Jesus exhorted us to in Matthew 5.16? He's speaking to, to the Jews, but it's an exhortation to all of us. Consider this when he says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. The wording does not say, Make your light so shine. He says, Let your light so shine. Because it is not you. It's already there. If you have the Spirit of God, and you have received it by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that Spirit of God lives within you. The indwelling Spirit is there. And He's saying, just let it shine. All you can do is impede it. If you get out of the way, guess what? It shines naturally. But what we tend to do is we tend to get in the way. Let. Let your light so shine. And then notice what it says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of His good pleasure. The good that comes out of you, it's God. Do all things without murmurings and disputings. I don't want to. Just do it. Uh, that ye may be blameless. Notice this. That ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. If you were to give a crooked and perverse nation a light, I think you'd probably call it, or a, a color, you'd probably say it was dark. Right? Right now we live in a crooked and a perverse nation. Do we not? Yes. Can we look at the generations around us and just see, man, depravity all around us? Now, we can judge them, but that's not our place. Our job is to love them. Yeah. Darkness, right? The goal is to change it. The Bible says that we're supposed to be salt and light. We're supposed to make a difference. So what does he say next? He finishes it up this way. Among whom, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nations, among whom you shine as lights in the world. It doesn't say that you shine because you're a light. It says you shine as a light. The same way the moon works in the night and shines to the world and reveals light because it reflects the sun, that's exactly what you and I are supposed to be doing. A reflection of the love of God. Are we giving grace like Christ gave us? Are we patient? Are we loving? Are we kind? Or are we kind of watching out for ourselves? Are we judging the people around us and deciding who deserves it and who doesn't? It's not our job. Our job is just to shine. Today we've witnessed how the tribe of Zebulun was a part of bringing spiritual darkness upon the world. And they did. But we've also witnessed how God used that same place, that same recognition, of that same name to a location that would bring and be the course that light would be brought to the earth. And you've got to realize when we look into our own story, right? Let's make it personal. Let's think about it from our perspective. Most of us can probably look back in our lives and we can kind of track the course of darkness. We can see the choices that we made. We can think back to people that we hurt. We can think back to the things that we did. And we can track the course of destruction and bad choices. The same way we came as Zebulun, we can see in our own lives. And darkness, right? We experience darkness. But then, but then there was the light. And we saw the light. And we responded to the light. And we put faith in the light. And we gave it our hearts. And the Lord redeemed us. And He changed our story. The same way he did by way of the same thing with Zebulun. And then what happens is now no longer is our story one of failure and brokenness, but now it's one of light and restoration and healing. And then God's saying, hey, listen, guess what? Praise the Lord. Wonderful news. I need you to shine. I need you to shine because guess what? Your story doesn't end there. It's not just about you. See, there are some people that go to churches and they go, I'm saved. Well, praise God. My, I'm saved. My family saved. Well, I hope the world... You know, I'm just going to isolate myself and, you know, that. But listen, our life is given to us. The reason why you're on earth is not just to be saved. If it was just to save you, God would save you and kill you. What would be the point of leaving you here? But no, he left us here with a mission to get to work. And the whole thing is the light and the love of God is supposed to come out of us to impact the people around us. Because I can promise you the world around you is dark. The world around you is hopeless. The world around you is broken. The world around you is full of people that are hurting. 
Why does it say on our sign, a place of restoration? Because most people that are in this church that have made this their home were people that came in here who were broken. Either broken through religion, broken through life, broken through their own circumstances, their own choices, whatever took place, and they came and said, you know what? I don't bring any to the table. I'm a mess. And God says, great, I specialize. I specialize in the broken. Have you seen the 12 that I chose? Yeesh! Do you see the guy that's preaching in this church? Oh boy. It's all been a story of restoration. Because God wants to take all those broken shards that are shattered on the floor and reassemble them and make something more beautiful than was there before. And then take that vessel and fill it with honor and glory and His light and His love and pour it into the community around us. That's the reason why we're here. If it was just about us, man, He'd take us home. But He left us here. As He said in His prayer to the Father, He says, I don't want you to take them out of the world. I just want you to protect them from the evil. Just protect them from the evil because I want them. I want them to shine. And see, this world is filled with spiritual darkness. This, people is, this world is filled with people that are frightened and that feel spiritually alone, that feel spiritually hopeless. And you know what they're doing? Right now, they're searching on their phones and they're embracing lies that are given to them to distract them from the truth. Remember what the Bible said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4? Blinded the minds of those that don't believe. And he's given them every reason that it can't be God. But the thing that God can use you to do is to be an example in their life that'll turn that whole narrative that they're sold on the phone in living color. Turn that narrative on its head and help them see you a light in the dark. Hope to the hopeless. Joy in the midst of a storm that that doesn't make any sense to them. Like the Bible says, a peace that passeth all understanding. But it's for our hearts and minds. And what we lend you this, Philippians 2.15, one more time. That ye may be blameless and harmless. This is God's intention for us. That ye may be blameless and harmless. That we're we're not involved in sin. The sons of God, without rebuke, we don't need to be corrected because we're on course for the Lord. And here we are, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, spiritual darkness, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. God has given us a clear mission. No doubt about it. And it is to bring the lost and the broken from darkness to light. He did it for you. And see, the expectation is that we'll do it again. We'll do it for someone else. Because can I promise you that if you just take the time to engage with people that are lost, they are looking for the light. They are desperate for the light. And when they look more into the darkness and more into the darkness and the more in the darkness and the more hopeless they become, the more desperate they become for the light. And if you were in a cave and it was a thousand feet deep and it was pitch black and I had just a match. Man, you may go, I'm not a very bright light. I don't care. (laughs) Shine what you can shine. (laughs) Give it all you got. Get out of the way. Because you know what? They're looking. All we have to do is shine. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the truth of your word. Thank you for the beautiful things you've taught us from scripture and God, the the way that you reveal truth to us on so many multiple levels. Thank you, God, for the way that you've uh, revealed uh, the key, which is, Father, that we need to be focused on light, being a representation of you to this, this hurting and broken world. And with our heads bowed and with our eyes closed, if... If you're here today and you say, listen, Pastor, I'm struggling. I know I'm saved. I'm not worried about that. But my walk with God is not where I want it to be. I want to be a light. I want to make a difference. But I'm caught up in the things of this world. I've got too many things that I've got a hold of my heart. And I want to let go. Pastor, would you pray for me to get really on fire for the Lord that my life would make a difference? If that's you, I'm not, yeah, amen, amen. Raise your hand. Just, I'm not going to call you out of prayer. Just raise your hand. I'm going to pray for you. Amen, amen, amen. Hands all over. Praise God. And if you're here today and you say, listen, I don't know necessarily where I stand with God. 
You might be joining us online or listening to this recorded. Recognize it does not take a preacher to establish a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Not at all. It's Him and you. Wherever you are, whatever's going on in your life, the Bible talks about that. Jesus says, no man, no man cometh to me, but the Father draw him. If you feel the draw of God, it's like a magnet pulling on some iron shavings, man. You start to feel that draw. And there's a tension there between the magnet and the iron. And the tension only stops when the, when the iron lets go of the earth and makes contact with the magnet. And can I promise you the tension that you feel as God's drawing your heart will only go away when you let go of this world and you just put your faith in Christ. He died on the cross with you intentioned. He loves you right where you are. He's offering you salvation individually, personally. He knows your whole story and yet he loves you anyway. 22 years ago, he saved my soul and I'll never be the same. You can do the same thing today. If you're listening to this, if you're watching this, if you're here now, I'm going to give you an opportunity to pray. It will not be the words that will do anything for you. There's no ceremony involved. It's just your heart reaching out to God. You let go. Let go of the world. And He will He will take you. So with our heads bowed and eyes closed, if you want to receive Christ, I'm going to lead you in prayer. Again, it's not the words. It's your heart that God's listening to. With our heads bowed and eyes closed, in your heart and mind, repeat this prayer after me, speaking to God. Dear Lord, I, I know that I'm a sinner. And I am so very sorry for all that I've done wrong. I understand there's a penalty for my sin. I also incredibly understand that you paid it. You paid it for me. Lord, I'm asking you by faith to come into my life, to come into my heart, and to save my soul. Lord, I give you my life, and I'm asking you to live through me. God, thank you for saving me. I'll see you in heaven one day. For it's in Jesus' name I pray and give thanks. Amen.